This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. This week, what a unique and incredibly dedicated individual. You know, my wife and I just sent our oldest son off to Israel to study about two weeks ago. And anyone following along this year will know that it was not a simple process to get young people into the country to go study. And tremendous amount of logistics and involvement. And the person I'm interviewing today, Pesach Friedman, runs an organization called Chaim Vachesed. And essentially, the entire raison d'etre of this organization is to help Anglos in Israel navigate the labyrinthine web of regulations and bureaucratic realities that animates the Jewish state. Of course, it's a wonderful, beautiful place to be and to live, but I think anyone who's been there knows that it has its distinct cultural nuances, and those can be forbidding to an American or other English speaker trying to make his or her way there. And so, Chaim Bechazed, I know, was involved in helping get people into Israel during this time of corona, but much more broadly, they've done a tremendous amount to assist people who have made Aliyah or otherwise living there long term to deal with all of the myriad issues that come up, healthcare to getting paperwork in order, schooling, finding professions, and so forth. Pesach Friedman, like myself, grew up in Baltimore, and I actually know his brother quite well, who's a colleague of mine, doing campus outreach work as well in Atlanta. So we had a number of connections, and I had heard about the organization for a while and really was excited to do this interview. We actually did it much earlier in COVID, and I'm finally getting around to releasing it now, but you'll hear that it's just as relevant as ever, and I think you'll really enjoy. Meanwhile, a reminder to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Subscribe wherever you're listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever pods are cast. And comments or questions to Jews You Should Know at gmail.com. And now to our conversation with Chaim Vachesed, founder and director. Pesach Friedman. We are here with Pesach Friedman, the founder and director of Chaim Vachesed, which is an incredible organization based in Israel, helping those who have moved to Israel or, or living there, Americans and Anglos, deal with the incredible bureaucratic web that is the Holy Land. Um, and I'm sure we'll get to all of that. But first of all, Pesach, how are you? Great. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, Pesach, from what I little I know about you and your family, at least, um, I believe you are uh, similarly from the great city of Baltimore, as am I, uh, having grown up there. Tell us a little bit about your background and uh, where it all began. Sure. So I was born in Baltimore uh, a few decades back, and I did live there until I was about uh, 21 years old. 
at which time I was actually studying in yeshiva here in Jerusalem, Israel. I got married in Baltimore and returned for studies uh, back here in Jerusalem, thinking that it would be for about a year or two. And now, to make fast forward, we're actually living here now for 25 years. Wow, that's a long time. Um, so growing up, I, I understand your father, if I recall, is a, is a, uh, was the principal of uh, one of the high schools in Baltimore? My father was a principal, actually, of Siakov uh, Girls' School. Uh, he, my grandfather before him was a principal for 35 years. My father, of blessed memory, was a principal for 37 years. Uh, but uh, I did not choose that route. <laughs> so, say, what happened? You missed the you missed the boat. Any of your siblings yes, uh, go to that uh, industry? Uh, it just so happens that the current principal is my brother-in-law. <laughs> there we go. Shocker. There we go. Beautiful. What was your uh, What was your childhood like in Baltimore? It was uh, a different kind of town, I think, back then. A lot smaller in terms of the Jewish community. In terms of the Jewish community, I don't even know if it was a quarter of the size back then. I regularly meet people that say they're from Baltimore, and you must know my family. And they say, well, they moved there a long time ago, 20 years ago. I say, well, that was about five years after I was out of there. So uh, it's definitely uh, grown by leaps and bounds, the Jewish community, which is a blessed thing. Uh, I still obviously have uh, four siblings there. My mother lives there. So I am there frequently, so I definitely have connections to the Baltimore community and holds a very dear place in my heart. Amazing. So when you, obviously, I guess you went to Israel just for yeshiva study, as is fairly typical for uh, young men and women in the observant community to go and spend uh, some time basking in the spiritual glow of Israel and, and studying in, in the great educational institutions there. So many people, or most people, they go for a year or two years, three years, and then they, they come back, they, they go to college, they continue their education in the States. It sounds like you, you chose not to do that and stuck around for a little while over there. What was, what was your path over there and what kind of grabbed you about Israel? That's a great question. Uh, it was a gradual process because like I said, we actually came expecting to deliver for about a year after the wedding. A year became two years, three years, five years. At a certain point we said, okay, we're going to have to make a decision if we'd like to establish ourselves here permanently. And eventually we did. Uh, listen. Uh, it's uh, definitely the best place for a Jew to live, in my opinion. That's uh, the, heart, the heartbeat of the Jewish people. Not everyone is able to do it. I understand it. Uh, we sort of grew into it organically, like I said, that we were just here on a short-term basis, which became a little longer, which became a little longer. I think that definitely makes it easier. Uh, you know, as we'll get to, we, we talk to people about making Aliyah on a regular basis, and I understand it's definitely a huge challenge and a great leap for someone to pick up in midlife, so to speak, established as a family, established in a profession, whatever it is to move here is not simple. But I was here in studies and just continued the studies and eventually got into a lot of other things, which maybe we'll talk about soon. So it happened in a much, uh, like I said, a much more gradual uh, fashion, which definitely does make it easier than those that sort of make Aliyah cold turkey midlife but uh it's not without its challenges which uh we'll get to in a little bit it definitely led me to, to what i'm doing today so you went there married i guess was your wife also did she have any connection there or was was that just a joint decision uh my wife uh, was also is also a baltimorean uh as am i uh, she had studied in Israel for a year. She did have a, a set of grandparents that lived in Israel, so she had connections. But again, we were definitely an American couple, you know, just trying it out. Beautiful. So what was your early plans? Just to study there and continue studying in, in uh, a kollel, in a Jewish 
institution for for married people um, to advance their Jewish studies. Did you have any idea of like what you wanted to do over there, or was really just kind of one year at a time doing some Jewish study and see what happens? Oh, so, so our, our original intent was in, the, in in fact doing Jewish study. Actually, I worked on receiving rabbinical ordination, which takes a few years, or sometimes could be draw, a more drawn out process. And my goal was to do that. I definitely. Uh, wanted from a pretty uh, young age to serve the Jewish people in some fashion. That was definitely the, the background from which I came, but I had no idea exactly how that would go. It's pretty common uh, amongst the Shuriva students, let's say, obtain rabbinical ordination, even if you're not necessarily going to serve as a pulpit rabbi. So I did want to do that. The studies are valuable in and of themselves. I was doing that as a, as a preliminary step towards some form of service to the Jewish people. Uh, in my coming years, at a later date, I actually also obtained a, a master's degree in uh, educational leadership. But at the time, coming to Israel, the goal was really to just uh, absorb a lot of the uniqueness of, of Israel, as well as, as doing, uh, earning that ordination and, and, and becoming a much more knowledgeable and capable Jew. So obviously, as, as you said, at some point, things changed a little bit. And it looked like this was going to be a longer term engagement in terms of where you were living and, uh, and sticking around in the Holy land. What do you think kind of clicked at some point finally? Was it just like, all right, we've been here long enough. We might as well just make it official. Or was there a moment in time where you said, you know what, we really want to hitch our wagon to this place long term. And you know, there's no, no turning back. Um, I think it was probably a combination of, like you say, sort of just the momentum of having lived there, live, lived here, but also uh, I'm not sure that there was what you call a moment that it all uh, dawned upon us, but really from an early age, uh, I had wished to establish ourselves, maybe live long-term in Israel, but it always looked a little bit daunting or a lot daunting and maybe, you know, too much to do. At some point we decided, you know, we could do this. It's not so complicated. I personally spent many summers here, even as a boy in Israel. I had family here. Uh, so I felt connected to Israel for a very long time, but it was always sort of a vacation spot or a place to visit. And after a number of years of living here and seeing others that were living here successfully, we decided that, you know, this could work. So once you made that decision, did you start going to, you know, work in some capacity in the, in the broader economy or did you um, continue studying and, and at what point did you have a sense of where you were going to go in terms of your own career? Uh, basically I, at that point I was still studying at least a considerable part, considerable part of the day. Uh, I began uh, a few projects simultaneously you know, while I was studying, one of which was a, started as one group, which became actually a network at its peak was 18 Kolos, which are study groups uh, headed, by, headed by Rabbi Yitzhak Berkowitz, which studied and taught the laws, the halachot of mitzvot ben adam l'chaviro, which are interpersonal relationships. Uh, we started with one group, which then went out and established other such groups of, of scholars studying and teaching ben adam l'chaviro. We put out a number of, of books, first in Hebrew and subsequently in English, on those topics. Um, this has morphed into all sorts of other projects, some of which we ran, others which we spun off into other, into other areas. But that was sort of a combination of, I guess we call it working and learning and studying because I was actually studying the material at, uh, at the same time as we began compiling it, putting out books, and subsequently uh, you know, teaching it to others. 
that what, what that did was you know, m- many of those projects are still ongoing today. What that really did was it got me into involved into in both simultaneously education, uh, spreading Jewish knowledge, and particularly Ben Adam Lachavira, which is interpersonal relationships or the mitzvot of interpersonal relationships, which are a major part of what Judaism is. Uh, it's more than 50% of the mitzvot which we observe today are Ben Adam Lachavira. A lot of them we do just intuitively. Some of them we know the halachot of, you know, the laws and guidelines, and many others we don't exactly know. So that was a very uh, enlightening experience, and we we were privileged to share that with others as well. It's interesting. Uh, I you know I knew about that curriculum, and I heard quite a bit about it over the years. I didn't know that you were associated with it. Uh, how did that involvement get started? Uh, I actually spent a little under one year in Asia Torah. They brought in a group of scholars from the Mir Yeshiva to study slash teach simultaneously. And at that point, I was uh, introduced to Rabbi Yitzhak Berkowitz and studied under him. Uh, Rabbi Berkowitz, as you may be familiar, is a tremendous uh, world-renowned scholar. But what was less known at the time was that he had a particular affinity and actually expertise in these mitzvot and Allah Haveru. For whatever reason, it appealed to me as well. And together with a dear friend of mine, Rabbi Tzvi Muller, who today actually runs a similar program in Michigan, uh, we approached Rabbi Berkowitz and started, like I said, a small program at the time, which which grew by leaps and bounds over the next number of years. This is going back to 2001. So what was, what was your motivation ago. starting such a program? Great question. Uh, I think personally, uh, I knew that this, this was a valuable part of, of, of Judaism. I thought that much of it was overlooked. There are you know, a number of different reasons why that might be so soci- sociologically and so on. Maybe people focused more on the between man and God mitzvot. Uh, maybe people were aware but didn't know the, the exact details. Regardless, I felt it was a, a major area of Torah that needed to be addressed, and uh, we wanted to make a little dent in that. It's interesting. I wonder sometimes, like you said, sociologically, if you know the, the there's a lot to to be said for some of the rifts that have occurred over the centuries and you know among the Jewish people, and you know you speculate whether the focus, the pre- predominant focus in the non-Orthodox denominations on social action, social justice, and things of that nature, have made the more traditional movements more. Uh, suspect or more concerned about being overtly associated with the man-to-man or interpersonal aspects of Judaism when in fact that's a massive part of the of the religion you think there's any credence to that theory or, or do you have another um perhaps there are those that react that way I, I don't I don't see it that way whatsoever because I don't I don't find that the Orthodox world is lacking whatsoever in 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 the, in the man-to-man uh, mitzvot. Uh, I'll explain. I'll explain what I think maybe was lacking, but uh, the tremendous amount of chesed, of of kindness, of charitable work which is done, it's second to none. Whether it be you look at the Bikr Cholim, the you know, the visiting of the sick, or the or the assistance to patients in all the major New York hospitals, which are done by mostly Hasidim, uh, whether it be the fact that every Jewish community has very very active. You know, charity, you know, charity groups, Tomchei Shabbos, and things like that. Whether it be just even in the interpersonal, just the emphasis on not speaking lashon hara, right, uh, wicked speech, evil, evil talk, and so on. So I don't believe whatsoever that the Orthodox community has any less 
uh, focus on social action, but perhaps what's uh, what's what's more out there is that there is there is perhaps much more observance of those mitzvot between man and man, and maybe there's an impression that those things override or over or over uh, man and God shadow. Yeah. Okay, uh, and, and 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 that perhaps may be true, and there may be a misconception that maybe you know those Orthodox Jews are just concerned about you know keeping Shabbat or whatever it might be, and maybe you know come across. To those that are, let's say, less familiar with the community, uh, as as not focusing so much on the interpersonal things. Um, so far as social action, which is you know, frequently interchanged or used in conjunction with a term called tikkun olam, um, again, I, I don't believe that uh, that's that, that doesn't exist in the Orthodox world whatsoever. Um, every day, you know, we, we we actually say that in the Aleinu prayer, we say litakein olam. Uh, but what some often neglect is the subsequent words, which is right? in God's image. Right? Social action in and of itself, uh, with, without a connection to Judaism or a connection to Torah, there's no need to do that as a Jew. You could do that as a member of any religion. But we care to do. You know, we, we chose. We choose to do it in a very divine fashion, and viewing those things as divinely ordained. That might be a difference, uh, which which uh, which does exist. But again, uh, we could always improve, and it's not a question of uh, who's uh, who does something better, who does something worse. I do find that the the mitzvah and the are definitely a point of connection between Jews of de- many, many backgrounds. Um, I know a number of Orthodox rabbis who actually study with non-Orthodox, uh, whether it be constituents or sometimes even clergy members, and the common ground that they find to study is none other than these mitzvot ben al because they're perhaps less uh, daunting or more familiar to people who perhaps don't have that, you know, that, that high you know, level, level of observance of all 613 mitzvot. And it's very beautiful that Jews of different backgrounds could connect over it. But again, it's not, a, it's not you know, I never saw it as something that was missing in uh, in uh, in the orthodox community but on the contrary we're always looking to improve and in, in, in both mitzvah between man and god so so for some reason or other this appealed to me and we took that on and it uh it did take off what did you actually do so you developed curriculums you created sort of like if i recall like source sheets or sort of like primers on various specific modules within the man-to-man or interpersonal relationships, different units that you then distributed around the world and people could study them and, and so forth. How did you sort of promote that and were there programs built around it? Um, just like you said, we did make those modules first in Hebrew, subsequently in English. What they were uh, primarily were taking the, the mitzvah, the any particular mitzvah from its sources in the Torah down to the practical application today in, you know, in 2020, uh, which is in and of itself an attractive thing for many people who sometimes think that, you know, Torah learning might be arcane or uh, out of date. We always, you know, discussed what do you do with the the following workplace uh, dilemma or something like that, or interpersonal, you know, question like, can you tell a white lie or whatever the particular topic was, and then, you know, start off with such a, a practical application, then back it up, trace it all the way back through the sources, all the way back to the mitzvah and the Torah, you know, to the verse in, you know, in the Bible. Um, what we did was we we were never looking to you know, simply to paste our name in different places. We pre- we pre- we prepared curriculums which were you know, malleable that different different. Uh, groups, organizations, schools, whether it be for children, whether it be for adults, whether it be for more knowledgeable Jews, whether it be for beginners, were able to take that material, study it on their level, and uh, it was a good thing.
what were some of the examples of units that you produced or maybe that were the most successful or, or the most interesting? Um, one of the things I always felt most interesting was uh, the laws of truth and lying. There are a lot of things which people think, oh, it's a white lie, that's all right to do. And we discovered that there are many things that are unacceptable. Uh, at the same time, there are situations where a white lie is what's called for. Someone asks you a question which perhaps would require uh, revealing uh, personal or discrete information which you have no right to share. Uh, sometimes you're actually uh, not permitted to say what we would call the truth. Uh, that's one interesting area. Another very, very interesting area, which really has a lot of the underpinnings of many of the other mitzvot as well, is b'tzedek tishvot amitecha, which is judging others favorably. Basically, we always think you're not supposed to judge people. You're supposed to be non-judgmental. And what we really discovered is the Torah doesn't buy that. The Torah knows that every one of us is very judgmental. We always judge people, and there's actually instructions how we should judge people, right? When you see someone... I don't know, hooking up his car with a uh, chain to an ATM machine and stepping on the gas pedal. Are you supposed to be non-judgmental and think that he's just uh, trying out his, uh, his accelerator? Or are you supposed to call the police because probably a robbery is taking place? Uh, you know, I think the answer should be obvious once I put it that way. <laughs> there, are other instances, there are other instances where things look more negative and really need a deeper look and think, oh, you know, I see an or a clearly orthodox guy driving in a car on Chavez, maybe even at a high rate of speed. You know, did he just decide to, to throw, you know, to, to, to stop being Sabbath observant? Or maybe there's a, a life and death emergency and maybe he's a doctor or a, a paramedic running to a, to a scene and other, other, other issues like that. And those are just two examples, but there are many, many examples in every area of our daily life where we see things taking place and it could be, you know, from the, with those who are close to, to, close to us, with our immediate family, with our spouses, and it could be even with strangers. And how are we supposed to look at that? And how are we supposed to relate and, and, and then react? Can you think of any stories from that time or the period, you know, following it that stand out for you about ways that this curriculum was implemented or ways that people's lives were changed by this focus on sort of values-based Judaism uh, in terms of the interpersonal relationships? I'm not thinking of any stories right now, but a couple of the points I mentioned before were really, really beautiful in which Jews from very, very different backgrounds were able to actually come together over essentially a piece of Gemara, a piece of Talmud, uh, because like I said, it was a non-judgmental, non-threatening sort of topic, uh, which is relevant to everybody which it's very easy to, with our curriculum to trace right back to a Pasuk, a verse in the Torah and show how that you know, verse, which was given to the Jewish people at, at Sinai over 3,000 years ago, actually can impact and you know, better our lives here today in the U.S. and Israel, wherever it might be. Uh, we found that time and time again, and that's feedback that we always get from people studying that, that it's really a great connector. Beautiful. So what happened that it seems like you, I guess, moved on from that project at some point? It sounds like you said that project still exists in some iteration. The project definitely exists in some iteration, but it's definitely not the focus of what I'm doing today. Uh, to put it very succinctly, I guess you could say I um, stopped teaching Ben Adel and started actually doing some. <laughs> I thought you were going to say after you perfected it, you moved on to the higher uh, realms. <laughs> if, we, if we think we've perfected it, we've got a lot coming to us. Uh, we can only, it's, it's, a, it's a constant, uh, it's a constant uh, work of growth. Uh, but 
I don't know if that was conscious, but uh, that's sort of what happened, actually. We're now involved in, as you can see, behind me, Chaim B'Chesed, which is an organization which I run and have been uh, at the helm of for the last f- five years. In 14 days, in, June, in July 1st, will be our fifth birthday. Also my, uh, also my anniversary, by the way. Just throwing that out beautiful. there. Beautiful. <laughs> Gorgeous. Okay. So, uh, um, I mean, so after, after the J-Values thing, which, with, you know, the interpersonal, you started moving in a direction of, very, very different, although really if you talk about interpersonal relationships and getting in the weeds and in, in the nitty gritty, you know, this is about as much as you can kind of roll up your sleeves and, and deal with, uh, you know, challenging, unattractive, unglamorous kind of work. The kind of work that I've read about you guys doing um, is, is precisely that. So tell us a little bit about the genesis of this project, Chaim V'Chesed, which literally means life and kindness. Um, which maybe you'll tell us about that origin as well in terms of the name. But where did this all come from? What happened that you started doing work on behalf of people, Americans or Anglos living in Israel and and all the ridiculous number of obstacles that they perhaps face? Okay, so you asked a very, uh, very excellent question. What was the genesis? Because like most things, the, nothing happens uh, in a vacuum. Uh, while I was involved in the Sense of Jewish Values and the Benel Havera work that we described before, uh, from the approximately 2004-2005, I also became involved in a great deal of tzedakah work, which is charitable work here in Israel. Uh, without getting into the specifics, I was and continue to be somewhat involved in uh, a lot of distribution of charitable funds, many of which come from a variety of, of Jews in the diaspora, many, not all of whom are even uh, observant Jews. And those Jews come with you know, very, very big hearts and with uh, specific things that they were looking for. They wanted to help specific areas of need in Israel. Uh, we're talking about women in distress, uh, teenagers uh, at risk, uh, children with cancer, uh, encouraging employment, all, all sorts of different areas where different benefactors would earmark money for specific projects or groups of people that they wanted to give money for. And uh, I was involved in the administration of those funds. How did they identify you? That's a very interesting question, but I had a partner, <laughs> uh, I have a partner who uh, uh, was involved in it. It was actually a, a former, an Ola Hadash, someone who had made Aliyah from the U.S. He was involved in the world of finance back in the U.S., still had a lot of business dealings in the United States, had a great number of business uh, partners as well as family members who he was involved in in, in, uh, in a financial fashion. And together they had a lot of stuff going on and somehow somehow got uh, orchestrated things that we uh, You we got roped connect. in, basically. <laughs> yeah, that's a, precisely what happened. Uh, and it, it was a very, uh, very, very special uh, experience. Some of it I'm still involved in, some of which I'm not. But it, it wasn't simply, okay, we'll give you some tzedakah money, write a check, and give it out to the poor people in Israel. Like I said, they had a lot of criteria, excellent criteria, um, sometimes challenging criteria. So what we really needed to do was uh, research many of the areas that those donors asked for, you know, find out who's doing things in Israel to, let's say, encourage employment 
who's doing who, who who does work with with orphans who's doing work with children with cancer all these different areas which they wanted to contribute to but not simply write a blank check or write a check blindly to some nice sounding organization what, what, what they always had wanted us to do is to research it look at the you know, kick the tires know the nuts and bolts often give the money directly to the recipients as opposed to just giving it to an organization which would do that so there was a a lot, a lot of work which went into it and caused me to learn a lot of different areas. Um, that in and of itself was was a lot. And then what happened, you know, stage stage two was once you get involved, you can't get uninvolved. You can't you cannot unentangle yourself. And you know the most basic example is you're helping a family perhaps because they've got a sick child, and all of a sudden that child needs to be treated in. In a hospital in New York, and needs to be flown out of Israel on a medical transport, and they need passports, and they need insurance, and they need you know, all sorts of arrangements uh, tonight by by tonight at midnight. Um, and all of a sudden, you you start learning those areas of of uh, of need. Um, you're dealing with a family, and all of a sudden, a family member is having a mental health crisis, and you need to deal with the with the social services, or you know, a child gets involved with the police, and you need to negotiate with the police on their behalf, or uh, again, you're helping a needy family, and they land themselves in the hospital, and then you need to deal with them with their with their medical situation. Um, you have to have a very hard heart to not pick up, you know, run with the next step, even though you you maybe were just writing them a check or helping them with one specific topic. But if they call you up in the middle of the night, I mean, take it to the hospital, or my spouse needs to be taken to a uh, psychiatric unit. Those kind of things, you've got to respond there as well. So. I got for sure my feet wet, and maybe maybe a little more than my feet wet in a large number of of uh, areas of, of need. You know, a number of uh, many different disciplines, uh, many many connections in different areas. As as uh, as you probably know, Israel is a a, connect, a country where it's not really so much what you know, but who you know. There's something called protectia, which has no translation into English. Um, but that basically means who do you know who could help out in this particular case? So I developed a lot of that. What's interesting um, is that, that at this point you had been already living in Israel for quite a while, right? And and Israel is notorious for its bureaucratic challenges, especially uh, for for immigrants and you know those who didn't grow up there, those who didn't, you know, those who don't have a first cousin, you know, once removed or whatever in whatever ministry it is. So had you encountered your own, you know, bureaucratic challenges or snafus living there or, or it had been very smooth for you personally? I had some, thank God, nothing life-threatening, nothing terrible. Um, I did have a special needs child who was born, which after you thought you mastered the whole system, you had all sorts of new uh, challenges that came up. Um, but basically, uh, it's easy to learn on others' difficulties. Right? When you see someone else suffering, uh, thank God we don't have to suffer, but you want to help that person. And then at the same time, you fill up your Rolodex. You just uh, made that contact in the police department or in an airline or in you know, some airport or other government office. You file that away, which really brings me to, to what we're doing today with Chaim V'chesed. Uh, the tzedakah work, the charity work which we're involved in, did not focus specifically on Anglos, on English speakers here in Israel. But inevitably, I discover what you alluded to, which is to be a newcomer, to be an immigrant, to Israel is that much harder. It's not so easy for anybody to live here. Wonderful place to live. I'm all in favor. I wish all Jews would be able to do so. But when you have difficulties, it's really difficult. And if you don't know the language or you don't have those connections or you don't have the mentality, which is really more critical than the uh, even the language, uh, 
you're really at a real deficit. And if it's a real big problem, then you're at a really big deficit. So in going back, like I said, to 2015, uh, myself as well as a couple of others, you know, community members decided that we should really do something uh, to be a, sort of a, a umbrella organization and really a one-two address for members of the English-speaking community in Israel. There's a tremendous community of English speakers here in Israel. It's a very, very broad spectrum of people, both in their backgrounds and in their status, whether they're here as visitors, whether they're here as olim chadashim, recent immigrants, whether they're people that moved here many, many years ago, tourists. But there's a tremendous amount of native English speakers who have their unique mentality, their, their unique background, and maybe even their unique needs. If, there's gonna, if, if we're talking about a lot of Americans, which we're not limited to, we help British, South African, others as well. But for example, if it's Americans, so there are going to be issues which are relevant specifically to Americans in Israel, whether it be U.S. passports and dealing with the U.S. Uh, uh, consulate, whether it be right now in the, the stimulus funds which, which U.S. government gave out, whether it be Israel, uh, Americans living here who have issues with Social Security, uh, there, are, there, are, there are issues which are specific to them, and the general issues, you know, matters of daily life, which are, like I said, challenging for all and even more difficult if you're a foreigner. So we set out in 2015 to do something about that. So what were some of the first steps that you did to kind of formalize this enterprise in terms of services that you offered or divisions, so to speak? So actually, uh, we did it in a very uh, deliberate and organized fashion. We, sp we spent the first six months uh, went down from, 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 from the day. January 1st, 2015, we began, and we opened our doors, like I said, on July 1st, 2015. So that means we had six months to the day um, to basically do research, uh, meet with community members, meet with rabbis, meet with influential government uh, officials at different important points or what we thought were important points try to a identify the needs or the difficulties that people have and at the same time find out what solutions there are meaning are there organizations that deal with specific areas of uh of need are there contacts in government ministries who really are tasked with uh doing x y or z are there issues that no one has a solution for maybe we could seek a solution uh basically it was six months of research trying to identify the problems and usually the solutions uh that were out there um, like I said, that took six months and then we opened our doors. And what was the and first? We, yeah, go ahead. Then we found, then we found out that, uh, some of the research was spot on. Some of the things that we thought were major issues were not as prevalent as we thought other things. And this is more common. Many other issues that we, that we didn't dream were going to be so problematic came up. And, uh, when that happened, we did and continue to do very, very quick work. I'm mean, trying to be, you know, we try to be quick studies to find out the issue, get to the answer. Our motto in many areas is either we know the answer or we know where to get the answer. And uh, that's what's been going on for five years. It just has exploded. We today, fast forwarding, you know, you, you'll take me back to the beginning if you'd like, but today we're actually a staff of 14 members. We, uh, until the beginning of the corona crisis, we're actually taking an average of 100 new cases a day. It's now pushing 200 new cases a day. Every area of difficulty or crisis you can imagine, and quite a few that you can't imagine. Uh, there's not a day without some new issue coming up that, wow, we never heard of that before. And okay, we're going to look into it. We're going to try to address it. We're going to find the solution for it. Okay, so this, this whole enterprise is just... Is beyond fascinating to me and I have so many questions about it. I'm going to try to uh, 
be organized here in, in my pursuit. First of all, give us an overview. You know, the, what are the issues that you deal with? I'm sure it's healthcare and mental health and like you said, travel and passports. And, you know, what are, are there kind of divisions, subtitles? What are some of the unknown or un, you know, topics that you didn't expect to, to encounter that really are these larger issues? Give us a sort of an over an overview. Okay. So how much time do we have? We have as long as you want. <laughs> okay. Cause you just asked me about an hour's worth of, of work and, I don't know that I could be here for an hour, but uh, I will try to condense it. So far as departments, the way it breaks down is we have what's called the bureaucratic department. We have a mental health department. We have a medical and Kupat Cholim department. Kupat Cholim is the, the health insurance, the uh, HMOs, if you will. We have a hospital department. We have a special education department. And we have a women's health department. Those are the major departments. Now, the first one I mentioned is bureaucratic. Bureaucratic can range from anything to do with obtaining disability from being stuck with an issue with the airline or being overcharged by your cell phone company uh, from uh, not receiving a passport or trying to get a uh, birth certificate, or trying to get a driver's license or being, uh, being uh, evicted from your house because there's a problem with your payment. That's a very, very broad spectrum. We have today four people that work in a bureaucratic department. Uh, they're, they are constantly, they, they have certain issues which are frequent, you know, some of which I mentioned and others, which like I said, you never heard that one before, but it comes up, and that will usually be uh, something that they'll research and try to get the answer. Uh, when we get to the hospital department, what that means is we have three representatives who actually work for us on the ground in the hospitals. Uh, people will call up and say, I'm waiting in the hospital for an appointment. I don't know where to go. Or I'm sitting in the emergency room for six or seven hours, and no one's looking at me. Or I'm trying to get what's called a hit which is actually a, a guarantee of payment from my health insurance and it's just not coming or I've got a, a, I need, I need a very difficult to get appointment. The doctor says I need to do it in 48 hours. They tell me they'll give me one in four to eight weeks. Uh, so, so our, our representatives will help, help, uh, help clients over there. Sometimes it's just navigating them through the hospital physically. Uh, then we get to the, the, the medical system is quite complicated over here and very different to the, that which foreigners are used to. Uh, a lot of it is really just explanatory work, explaining to them what's going on, telling them how they could get you know, what's coming to them. Other times, it's things that we need to go to bat for. We need to negotiate with the particular Kupat Cholim healthcare insurance company for a particular uh, process to be approved or to get a uh, operation uh, paid for or whatever it might be. Uh, the mental health department is slightly different, and there we actually do actual mental health referrals to mental health specialists, which we do not do in most other areas. We don't do medical referrals. Uh, we simply help with the medical logistics. Uh, the special education department is, a, is uh, we have two women working there, uh, which is a very, very crucial department in which people often will either have children just born with special needs or a child who could have been you know, growing nicely and all of a sudden has a particular problem, they are referred to by, you know, by their ganena, by their nursery school teacher, or even by uh, you know, in, in, at a later point in, in, in their educational career that they need some kind of special needs care, special therapy or whatever it might be. And the average Israeli has a hard time navigating that. Again, the average foreigner has no idea where to turn. There are untold number of approvals or boards or you know, rubber stamps that you need to get. And basically, our special education department guides them through that um, and advises them on that. Uh, in, 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 uh, in general, the stuff breaks down to two areas. 
that is basically informative and actual hands-on assistance. Informative are many things. Someone says, okay, I just moved here from abroad. I need to convert my foreign license to an Israeli license. So there are a number of different uh, differences. How long you had your license abroad? Did you make Aliyah? What is your status here? But basically, we could answer those questions on the phone. If need be, we send them a guide by email. We also have it on our website. And that's an over and out kind of situation. Other things are a little bit more complex. Um, and we'll explain that as well. And sometimes they'll be back and forth or something doesn't work and, you know, they'll, they'll call us back again and we'll help them once again. That, you know, th that is all what we call informative, which is a large portion of the work. Uh, a separate part of it is when it's hands-on. Like I said, in the hospital, when someone's in the hospital, doesn't even know where to turn physically, we'll have a, a representative on the spot dealing with it. Other times, even by phone, whether or not we meet with them in person, but we need to get involved. Someone's not getting approval for, uh, discount that should be coming to them on their property tax or something we're dealing with today. There are three uh, residents of Israel who are not citizens who are having trouble with the education ministry. They're not recognizing their passport number in their system. So they're not able to get the certification that they're supposed to get. So we uh, interface with the government, sometimes pursue different government ministries at other, at other times need to even, you know, uh, create pressure, get other politicians involved if need be uh, to promote a particular issue, a particular problem that someone's having. So there we're actually helping hands-on with an issue that somebody's having. How does the government view you? Uh, are, do they see you as an ally? Do they see you as a thorn in their side? You know, oh man, Pesach's calling me again or one of his staff, you know, you finally got the guy's number in your Rolodex and then, you know, you're calling every, every three days with another case about, you know, somebody stuck abroad or somebody, you know, with an issue in their health insurance. How do they see you? It's a very valid question. And it's really not just a question for us as an organization. It's almost a, something that every uh, person who lives in Israel needs to grapple with as well. Let's say you find yourself in the hospital. Uh, you're waiting and they told you you'll be next, but already 30 minutes have gone by and they're not calling you in. What we tell people, uh, which is usually the case, you need a mixture of pushiness and friendliness. You need to be a little pushy. And this, we are in the Middle East. It's a little bit of a rough neighborhood. Whoever uh, you know, pushes their way in or nags the nurse is maybe going to be seen first. At the same time, you can't overdo it. If you're going to be, uh, like you say, a complete thorn in the side or what we call a nudnik in Hebrew, they're going to send you out of there. So there needs to be a mixture of friendliness and pushiness. And it's very difficult, especially when you don't, you're not familiar with the culture, to know exactly what's what. You know, I, I re, I, it reminds me of actually one incident that we had when a Kupat Cholim office actually called us up and said, we've got someone here. Maybe you could talk, him on, talk to him on the phone and talk him down. If not, we're going to have to call the police. He's yelling <laughs> and screaming. He's yelling and screaming and ref, refuses to leave. So we got on the phone, and it turned out that this gentleman was a recent immigrant who had applied for something in the Kupat Cholim and had been refused. doesn't matter if he should have been refused or wasn't refused, but he decided that he was being taken advantage of because he's just a new immigrant. And someone had told him that the only way you get things done in Israel is if you yell and scream. Now, that is sometimes true that you got to yell and scream, but you, know, you need to know when, where, and how much, and for that matter, how loud. This guy was yelling and screaming, wouldn't leave, thought that that's how you get things done. And like I said, like I said he was about to have the police called you know, to take him away. We tried to explain it to him in his language, what's going on, how you're supposed to deal with this, why the branch manager that you're talking to is not even capable of dealing with it, and you know, hopefully we helped out with that particular case. Getting back to us as an organization, um, we don't find that at all. Uh, we 
a very large portion of what we do is actually dependent on the relationships that we establish. And if, if we'd be, like you say, a thorn in people's sides, they wouldn't cooperate with us. Um, we try to establish personal relationships with, with the various contexts and different government ministries and keep that personal and become friendly with them. Uh, often when they're, in my opinion, when they're smart, they realize that we really could be an ally to them or, or, or actually help them out a lot. Uh, if, if this government officer is just getting bombarded by all sorts of clueless, hapless foreigners, not understanding what's going on, and he could explain it once to us and we can then deploy that information to others. So that would be to his benefit. Uh, and we try to explain that to whether it be the healthcare, uh, uh, insurance companies, whether it be to government offices, that listen, if you could give this to us in clear, in writing, you know, if you know, fix this problem, you know, close this loophole, uh, we'll be able to. You'll 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 have a better time of it as well, and that really uh, is what we find very often. We try to make them our ally. We try to explain that to them. Sometimes it takes them a few times till they realize that, and uh, it works. The system works. What's the name Chaim Bechesed? Why did you choose that particular name? Well, Chaim Bechesed, like you said earlier, does mean life and, and kindness. But uh, it refers sort of to the fact that we provide Chesed, which is kindness or assistance, in every area of Chaim, every area of life. So like you'll see from our, uh, our logo right behind me, you'll see actually uh, right in the middle of, the, of, the, of that compass is, uh, is the the state of Israel right there. And um, the idea being that what we're doing is, is uh, being a compass, giving you guidance to sort of navigate in Israel. Is there overlap with, with other organizations that, you know, uh, without getting too political, but you know, for example, something like Nefesh Benefesh, which is designed to help people make Aliyah. And from my understanding to help also to help learn about the hurdles involved in Aliyah and helping with employment and, placements in different aspects of life, medical and otherwise, how, how where, where is the overlaps and where are the gaps and how do you interface, if at all, with other organizations that, that may be out there? That's a, that's a fantastic question. And it's actually something that rather than being a problem, we've made into a, a, a tremendous asset. Uh, you mentioned Nefesh Nefesh. It's a fantastic organization. We work very closely with them. Uh, and I'll give you, uh, we'll use that actually as a springboard. Nefesh Nefesh's main mission is to bring the Jews to Israel. Okay, and they help people make Aliyah, do an amazing job of it. Uh, they obviously know that it's not so easy once you get here, and therefore they provide uh, a various, you know, various support uh, forums once you get here. However, it's not really their job to hold your hand through everything once you're here, through daily life. Certainly not after you're here for a number of years. Um, you wouldn't call Nefesh Nefesh when you're stuck in the hospital and nobody's looking at you. You may call Nefesh Nefesh when you're first getting here and you have a problem with your Aliyah papers. And Nefesh Nefesh uh, appreciates what we do and we appreciate what they do. So, for instance, when we get calls about, I'd like to make Aliyah, we just say, here's the number of Nefesh for Nefesh. I'd like to know which rights, which is chuyot I'll have when, you know, when making Aliyah, speak to Nefesh for Nefesh. If someone says they're having trouble with reaching Nefesh for Nefesh or it's after hours and they have an emergency needing Nefesh for Nefesh, we could help you know, put them in contact with Nefesh for Nefesh if need be. Uh, but that's really Nefesh for Nefesh's expertise. At the same time, we actually have frequent contact with Nefesh Nefesh that they'll contact us, either they'll refer someone to us or they, they will actually pick up the phone and say, listen, we have this kind of interesting complication. Do you think you guys would be the ones to help in this case? And, uh, and they'll send things over to us. Nefesh Nefesh is probably the, the, the most commonly 
uh, asked area, but there are many, Israel is a land blessed with milk and honey and Jewish organizations. <laughs> and there are many organizations that do different pieces of work that we have a connection to. And we actually make it our business to get to know those organizations, actually on a personal level as well, and figure out how they can help us and we can help them. Meaning there's an organization called uh, Eza Mitzion. Eza Mitzion is a medical support organization. They happen to do many, many things. A lot of what they do is actually not even known to the public, uh, which maybe they should message better. Uh, but a lot of the things which they do, we're able to, when we get a call, we could say, oh, that's something that Eza Mitzion has a department for. And not only that, the head of that department is an American, is an English speaker. We could either just give you their number or perhaps we'll even connect you with him. Um, at the same time, Eza Mitzion deals with one of the departments that they have is mental health. And they sometimes will have someone who's having a problem getting his mental health benefits because he has a problem with his citizenship or with his bituach l'umi, which is his national insurance. And that's something that we're very involved in. So when we make them aware of what we do, they're able to tell this person who's getting stuck, oh, call Chaim V'chesed, they'll sort that out for you. Um, we're dealing right now actually with a major nursing home who has a, uh, who has a, a patient in the nursing home who is not an Israeli citizen but he is an Israeli resident, and it's not usually the kind of situation that they deal with. Uh, but he is eligible for rights, so they keep, they keep having trouble getting his rights, his benefits from the government, and we're, we, we are basically doing the backup for them. Whenever they run into a brick wall, we, we have our contacts in Bituachlami or other governmental offices, which sort it out for them. Uh, I, I view it as a, a blessing to have so many organizations, but we've got to know who does what, and work together. There, there isn't that much overlap because with the exception of Nefesh Nefesh, which is frequently asked, nobody's really servicing the Anglos, uh, certainly not servicing the Anglos specifically. But uh, it's, it's in everybody's best interest that we work together and a lot of beautiful things uh, come out of that. Just the last couple of questions. First of all, how are you guys funded? Is it all private donations? Are you getting any government support at this point? So the vast majority of it is private donations. That's been the case for most of the five years. We just got approved in the past year for a certain government uh, funding, but it's not all that significant. We're actually applying for more because I believe that the government should be funding us, you know, uh, 100%. 100%. <laughs> um, uh, not just simply because it will make my job better, but really because we are we are You're servicing. saving them a lot of money and time. We're yeah. Exactly. We're, we're doing a lot of the work whether it be the PR work, whether it be the explanatory work, whether it be helping tourists, whether it be helping Aliyah. You know, we, we, we're classified now as a Irgun Ma'udet Aliyah, an, Aliyah, an organization which encourages Aliyah. Uh, and I wish they would recognize that a little bit more. But we're not going to wait for them, and we keep uh, doing what we need to do. Fortunately, we've had uh, generous donors, benefactors who recognize what we what, that what we do is important. Sometimes it's people that have actually benefited from our services, so they could you know relate it directly. Other times we've helped their family members, and sometimes it's people that we haven't helped at all, but simply value you know Jewish settlement in the state of Israel. All right, the last couple of questions over here. What would you say is the strangest request that you've ever had to uh, address for for a constituent for a for a client? That's a hard one, but I mean, what comes to mind right away is you know. A young lady who called a newlywed uh, living here who had no idea what to do with the dogs that were entering the, I mean, wild dogs, I don't mean, you know, were enter, entering her backyard and had no way to get rid of them. That's been one of them. That, that would rank. Uh, strangest, we don't deal so much with strange, we deal more with the tragic. 
and whether someone who passed away over here in a hotel room and we need to find his next of kin, we need to get him identified. Sometimes we need to get a body flown from the diaspora into Israel, or sometimes fly someone back from here who needs to be buried abroad. Uh, other, other, other kinds of, of, of real heart-rending crises, hopefully sometimes with, with happy endings, unfortunately, not always. I mean, I, I do remember how uh, my children asked me at an early stage of the game how many deaths I was present for. I used to remember everyone. Unfortunately, now I can't keep track. Um, a lot of people, even right now during the current corona crisis, wanted to get into Israel just to say goodbye to their loved ones who were on the verge of passing. Uh, sometimes there are miraculous turnarounds and they got into Israel and were able to not be here for a funeral. That's definitely some of the times that make us happy. Uh, we've had number of, of uh, reproductive uh, issues, uh, women's health issues, where, where uh, there were some serious challenges. We actually have someone yesterday morning who was operated on in Boston, a baby that we accompanied actually from before that baby was born. Uh, from the fifth month of pregnancy, they, they, they identified troubles, and that baby was flown actually by private plane a couple of weeks ago to the U.S. Was being was operated yesterday in Boston, hopefully in a life-saving process. So we were happy to have a, a hand in that, and we'll be really happy to welcome that kid back healthy to Israel. Um, again, I don't know. I don't know if so many are strange, but there's well, a lot. It's of a good segue. I was I was going to ask you what your tragedies most tragedies and some and, and some tragedies avoided. Well, I was going to ask you as a, as a final question, what perhaps maybe your, your most touching story is or most memorable uh, kind of vignette? Um, it probably is probably the story which we got exactly one year ago. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was in June. When on one clear morning, we got sent pictures of a baby and pictures of a bris that had taken place earlier that morning. Circumcision had taken place. At first, I just saw the pictures and I hadn't read the text attached. And I said, what's this all about? Turned out that several months previously, we had been asked to help a woman arrange an abortion, which as a religious Jew is not something that we would do on a regular basis. It was actually a situation where a woman in her 20, 20th week of pregnancy uh, had discovered that it was a serious problem with the, with the child. There was halachic sanction. There are certain circumstances, rare circumstances, under which an abortion is permitted by Jewish law. And it was probably the first time that I was actually asked to help me get an abortion. What was, go what, what, uh, what was taking place at that time was that there is, Israel does allow abortions under certain uh, uh, circumstances, but there is a, a complicated process, approvals and so on, that need, to be, that need to be followed to obtain that abortion. And there was a doctor in one hospital that needed to sign off on it and a board in a different hospital that needed to give their approval and so on and so forth. It didn't seem like it should be that difficult for us. And we thought, okay, once we saw that it was something that was medically needed, uh, halakhically sanctioned. So unfortunately, we have to help in such cases just as much as in helping births or other happier occasions. For some reason, it just didn't go for us. And a lot of times we see that, you know, we're, we, we have extraordinary assistance from God. And here, it just wasn't going. Couldn't figure out why. Something that should have taken two days. I recall that we were on our ninth or tenth day of trying, and the top doctor ended up being on vacation. And afterwards, he was called inadvertently on his vacation, so he got very angry, didn't want to see them. All sorts of strange complications kept happening. Subsequently, what happened uh, was she finally arrived for the abortion. And the protocol calls for on the, uh, the last step, actually, is after they've already had 
two fetal uh, MRIs and this many ultrasounds or whatever it was, that another ultrasound be done before the abortion be performed. The abortion, the, the ultrasound was being, t- was, was, was being, was done and the technician ran out of the room and came back with the top doctor. And she says, there's some mix up over here. So what are you talking about? Says, well, this is not uh, consistent with the previous ultrasounds. Okay, what had been said was that the baby basically had no brain, had no brain function. And what they were seeing on the ultrasound was that this doesn't match. And the, the dire circumstances which were previously described, that's not what's going on over here. Okay, abortion's canceled for now. Okay, it was supposed to take place that morning. Subsequently, the doctor said, listen, it's not exactly like we thought, but, you know, it's still definitely going to be some serious brain damage there. It's not going to be a healthy child. Maybe the child could survive. Originally, we thought that the child wouldn't be able to survive, but, you know, definitely still something that you should do. And she was advised to go forth with the, with the, the abortion. After this whole mix-up, Whatever it was, this is not our involvement, but she decided she's going forth with the pregnancy and the abortion will not take place. Okay? End of story. We had done what we had to do. Thought we would never hear from her again. I think that was in March. In June, X amount of months later, the baby was born, 100% healthy. The bris took place on the eighth day. And uh, those are the pictures of the healthy baby boy that we uh, were looking at. So it was pretty, it's pretty, it's actually a pretty unusual situation because what we were trying to do is actually help uh, make that abortion happen. And we did not succeed. But I would say that's one of our more successful endeavors. We tried, it schlepped out for a number of days until it uh, subsequently and ultimately didn't happen. And here were the happy results. You said there's been a major uptick during coronavirus. Uh, Just tell people a little bit about what you're doing to help uh, Americans or Anglos abroad, and then finally how people can learn about Chaim Bechesed if they want to contribute, if they want to reach out for help themselves, and so forth. Okay, so, you know, it's obviously been a a crisis around the world, and Israel has been, uh, has not been spared in any which way. So far as shutting down the economy and causing uh, great difficulties to people, uh, whether it be for travel, whether it be for work purposes, employment, and so on, all those things are challenges here. And once again, when there are challenges, the challenges are magnified when you don't know what's going on, when you're away from home, when you're, you don't know the language, and so on. Some of the major issues at the beginning of the crisis were really foreigners here in Israel who wanted to get out, or how they could get out, what they could do. Subsequently, there were issues like unemployment, the State of Israel did, did provide all sorts of benefits to uh, employees, but it was very hard to access them. If you are a foreigner without Israeli citizenship, it became that much more difficult. We helped with that. There were also issues that we needed to advocate with the gov- for the government. There, were, there are many people that live here with valid visas to be in the country who are not citizens. And when those visas expire, you must renew it. What do you do when the government offices are shut down? You would lose. You, you would subsequently lose your health care, lose all sorts of benefits. We advocated and actually got the Interior Ministry to extend those visas till June 30th. Uh, there was an issue with driver's licenses, foreign driver's licenses from abroad. We helped with those issues. Now what's been going on for the last month and a half is foreigners who want to get back into Israel. Israel's borders are still largely closed. But there are many that live here who want to go back to their homes, but they're not citizens. Uh, we worked for weeks with the Interior Ministry to try to arrange a process, and we have arranged it. There always are hiccups. Just this morning, I spent a couple of hours on the phone with United Airlines, actually giving them a written protocol, which they should know over in Newark to know which 
people should be allowed onto the plane to fly to Israel, which not. Um, we're constantly dealing with, even in the middle of the night, people that get bumped off a flight who should be allowed, who shouldn't be allowed. People needing to come here for for a sick relative or maybe for a funeral or people on the other end of the other end of the spectrum having a wedding of a grandchild who's an Israeli citizen, but the grandparents want to come and they're not Israeli, getting them into the country. Uh, I mentioned earlier stimulus funding for U.S. citizens who are living abroad. They were able to get it. And really just explaining the whole situation to people right now what's going on. Uh, what I we just actually posted, people coming back from abroad have to quarantine for two weeks and that quarantine is a lot different than quarantine in the U.S. state. Uh, there's a lot of misconceptions. So a headline which I see right next to me is quarantine exemption misinformation. There are certain exemptions you could get from quarantine, but there's a lot of false rumors going about, around about that. So we need to interface with the health ministry, find out what is legitimate and what is not, and then post that and deploy that information. Uh, we, from, I believe, March 15th, uh, moved our whole staff uh, into uh, remote working. They're, they've been working from home. We didn't miss one hour of work, and we've actually been working mostly overtime. Uh, our caseload has almost doubled, and uh, there's no end in sight. There's always you know, new twists and new complications. And our, our goal is to be here to for the community to serve them and and be able to uh, address those needs, whether on a, on a, on an individual basis or advocate on a communal basis. Uh, you asked how people get in touch. The best the best way is definitely to visit our website, which is www.chaimvachesed.com. Uh, to contact us in Israel, it's 072 Chesed. It's 072-243-7733. Uh, right now, we're actually preferring that people contact us through email because the phone lines are just collapsing. Uh, phone, the, the email would be to send it to support at chaimvachesed.com or on the contact form on our website. And you mentioned contributions. We're happy to take them. You can do that on our website. Donate. We're happy to accept them. There we go. Pesach Friedman, Chaim Vachesed. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.